0: Well, I would ask you to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 11. Good to see you here, Fran. We've had a chance to see Fran yet. She's here, back. So, good to have you back. Hope you're feeling well. Good. Acts chapter 11. If this is your first Sunday here, we are studying the book of Acts. We're going through it thought by thought, and we have left off here at Acts chapter 11, looking at verses 19 through 30, where we are today. Acts 11, looking at verses 19 through 30. As you're getting settled there, I, was, I mentioned during our prayer time that I was at the board meeting for to every tribe, and it was a great meeting, and, and it was great just to hear about the work that's going on around the world, and great to see uh, you know, the organization really get behind Ron and, and Jen and the work in Canada, and as I was sitting there in the meeting, I was somewhat daydreaming, and uh, and because and, once they start getting into details, I start going off, and so I was thinking about the fact that. Um, uh, they were talking about different people going to the different fields and, and how fields were getting set up and, and all the work that goes on and a lot of the spade work that goes on when missions work happens. And, and it's pretty amazing stuff when you think about it, all the things that, that God does. And then I had this thought, and, and I, hopefully I can communicate this thought in a way that makes sense to you because it's kind of in the scary parts of my brain. But I'll try to get it out here. And the thought is this. I started thinking about the fact well, I'll tell you the exact thought, maybe it'll be easier. I thought. I wonder about all I wonder if I could ever see all the things that God did in the scope of all of history to lead up to the fact that I could place my faith in him. Like, what were the events that God had to do a thousand years ago? to move somebody to do this, to say this, that brought the gospel here, that brought the gospel there, that eventually led up to the fact that somebody shares the gospel with me in 1978. You know, what, what, what was all of that? What were all the things? If you could know all the things that God did in your life, or I should say, in the world, a thousand years ago, that had to be done, The person who moved here, who moved there, who said this, who influenced this person, who did this, that eventually that whole chain reaction led to somebody sitting down with you and either sharing Christ with you or bringing you even here today. What were all the things God had to do 500 years ago? 100 years ago. I started thinking about that because I was thinking about this like in relation, mentioned Ambria during our prayers and I was thinking about her this week as we were talking about India at the meeting and I was thinking... You know, here's a girl who wants to give her life to go to that part of the world. It's a desire, a passion for her. Where would that passion come from? Well, I know one influence of that passion. I don't know all of them. But I know one influence that she shared with me was that she had read a book when she was a child. It talked about worldviews and missions and things going on in the world. And, and, uh, and I was thinking, okay, well, she, she got this book at least and that influenced her. Well, Where would she get the book from? Well, her mom bought the book. So why did her mom buy the book? Well, something influenced her mom to say, this is a good book. I should have it in my home and teach it to my child. Well, that book was written by somebody. Well, what happened in that person's life that caused them, who influenced them, that caused them to write that book? Right? You see where this train of thought's going, right? It's it's just tracking down to the fact that all of these things start happening. And I realized something, that every moment of your life is part of a larger moment. You're connected to a bunch of moments that occurred before you. And these moments are going to be about moments that will carry life and fruit after you. That there's no such thing as just an isolated moment. God moves in amazing ways. I was thinking about that as I was thinking about the mission, and then uh, at one point during the financial records, I started writing my sermon right you know and i was thinking about the sermon at this moment and and the stuff's going on in my brain and i was thinking about the fact that we're at this moment where this church in antioch is getting formed here we are in the story in acts where now this city's going to emerge called antioch and antioch is such a strategic church but antioch was formed as god was taking all these different streams of things that would happened in the formation of the church that drove this church to be formed this church was formed out of trials. It was, it was formed out of persecution. It was formed out of people who were running for their lives. Mur- people were going out to try to murder them. In the midst of this, the church was struggling with how are they going to reach out past their own culture into different cultures? They were struggling because there was sin going on within the church that needed to be confronted. They were struggling because false teachers were trying to come in and, and, and take over the church. You have all of these things going on. And any single one of them were just isolated incidences. Saul trying to kill people and people having to run and flee for their lives. That's an incident. Ananias and Sapphira trying to fake the work of the, the Spirit. On and on, different things happening. Yet God was using all of that, all of those moments, piecing them all together to drive some people up into Antioch. And then to drive people from, Antio- from Jerusalem into Antioch and to bring all that they've learned to this place. And then this place was going to launch a worldwide missions movement. It's pretty amazing stuff to see our sovereign God at work. It's amazing. I thought about that in light of our church, thought about the fact that at any given moment, we could list out all our strengths, all our weaknesses, all our good things, all our bad things, our struggles, our failures, and we could look at any one of them in isolation. We could look at all our strengths and go, wow, we're a great church. We could look at all our weaknesses and go, wow, we're a horrible church. We could look at all the things we're struggling with, wow, we're an immature church. We could go through the line of anyone in isolation, but realizing God is so sovereign and so powerful, he takes all of that. Our strengths, our weaknesses, our trials, our struggles, he coalesces them and uses them to advance his kingdom. So, I want us to see that today. And I want us to be excited. I, I just was thrilled. This, the story of Antioch is one that uh, is very close to my heart. I love this uh, account. This is one of my favorite sections of, of Acts. And, uh, because I, I want us to see the reality that God is an amazing God And can use people in the most amazing circumstances. Antioch is not the place you would have ever thought could launch a worldwide missions movement. Launching a worldwide missions movement from Antioch is the equivalent of saying we're going to launch a worldwide missions movement from downtown Las Vegas. You you think about that as a mission field. You don't think about it as a mission sending place. You wouldn't think downtown, the Strip of Las Vegas is going to launch a worldwide missions movement. You'd say the Strip of Las Vegas needs to repent. Yet Antioch is that kind of place, a pagan place, a sensual place, a place where perversions were rampant and yet God moved in and not only brought this transformation, but then used that to to actually serve the church around the world. We're going to look at that. We're going to see the power of God in this. God bringing all these streams of things together for major transformation. And here's the transformation that occurs in this place. We're going to see this today because here in 11 we get introduced to Antioch. Luke always does this. He likes to introduce something and then later develop it. So here's our introduction to Antioch. And we're going to see the missionary work there. And actually you see a really good model of what missionary work is actually like. You can see your outline. What happens? Well, people go up there in the midst of persecution. They bring the gospel, and this culture, people in this culture are transformed from sinner to saints. And then what happens? Well, they need to be taught because they're they're pagan. They don't understand the gospel. They're not like Jews getting converted where they have a foundation in the Word. So what happens? Well, leaders need to come in and help them be transformed from untaught to taught. And then a crisis emerges in the world that turns this church from a place that received missionaries to a place that sent missionaries. So they went from receivers to givers. We're going to see all that transformation today. And what I want you to see in this text is the hand of God. The hand of God uniting all these streams to bring about transformation. And a transformation that then allowed this place, which would be the least likely place to launch a worldwide mission movement, to become the place that does that. And I hope that encourages you. I hope we walk out of here going, wow, this is good. This is exciting. This is how powerful God is. So let's look here. The first point. From sinners to saint. Look at verse 19 with me. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also. You can insert in there Gentiles if you want. It's not Hellenist Jews, be more Gentiles. Also, preaching the Lord Jesus. You've got to catch that, the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Okay, this is that moment in the story where Luke backtracks, okay? Because we've already seen the conversion of Saul. We've seen these great things that have happened. Now there's a backtrack. This is that, you know, meanwhile, back at the ranch kind of moment, right? We, we're going back to this other spot. and We're going back to when Saul first unleashed the persecution. And when Saul first unleashed the persecution, here's what happened. A bunch of people left Judea. They left the southern area. Now... The best way to do this, and I want to teach you how to do this, rather than putting a map up on the board, I want to teach you how to, how, to, how to read the book of Acts using your thumb as a map, okay, because this way, if you're reading it, you can kind of figure out these regions a little bit, okay, so Israel's like your thumb, just below the knuckle of your thumb is Judea, and I got a little like spot there that is Jerusalem, a little growth of some sort, okay, <laughs> that's Jerusalem, Okay, now if you go north and you're going up, now you're up in Galilee. That Galilee's kind of like your thumbnail. It's kind of the northern region up there. Now you get right above your thumbnail, and now you're in Antioch. Okay, Antioch's like right, right up at the tip. It's the corner of your thumb, right up there. Okay, that's Antioch, right up there. So what had happened was Saul's attacking right there on that growth. The people run. They go 300 miles north up there. They got out of Dodge, man, because Saul was trying to kill them. Now here's what happens. When they go out, they make their way up to Antioch. Some had not fully understood this thing because this was going on at the same time that Peter is trying to understand the gospel to the Gentiles. So some of these that, that had left We're still struggling, and it says that they were only preaching to Jews. That's all they were doing. They they couldn't handle the Gentile thing. But there were others that preached to Hellenists. Now, in this case, uh, there's uh, kind of a a translation issue here. You can translate it either as Greek-speaking Jews or to Gentiles themselves directly. You have one or two options of translating it. I think the best translation is, is Gentiles because of the way the church unfolded. There were a bunch of Gentiles in it. And so the idea is that there were some that broke off from this, mainly because most of the Jews living up there would have been Hellenistic Jews already. So the separation now, they've come. They went out, and they began to preach to the Gentiles. Now notice what they were preaching. Preaching the Lord Jesus. Remember the New Testament gospel message? Slightly different than the way we present it today. What was the New Testament gospel message? It was this. Jesus Christ is the Lord and the judge of the living and the dead. All men and women will stand before him one day. But the good news is that your judge can be your defense attorney. And if you trust in him, he will not condemn you on the day of judgment. That was the the New Testament message. So whenever you see they were preaching the Lord Jesus... They led off with Jesus' position as Lord and judge and then said the good news is he won't judge you if you trust in him because he's already taken the judgment upon himself. That's the gospel message as they proclaimed it. So they went out and they preached the Lord Jesus. And what had happened? The hand of the Lord was with them and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Isn't that incredible? Revival starts breaking out. This is going on at the exact same time that Peter is going out to Cornelius. The exact same time the gospel is going to the Samaritans and it's, Peter's taking it out to Cornelius. These guys are starting to leak out into Antioch and now this is happening up there. But Antioch is a unique place because God's going to do something in this church, which we'll see in a minute. But here's what I want you to notice. Here's just a little thought for you to, to consider. Why did these people go to Antioch to begin with? They went to Antioch because Saul was trying to kill them. Now, for a moment, I want you to think about this. If somebody came into our town, our, our county, and said, okay, here's the deal. If you believe in Jesus, you will die. They're either going to throw you in jail and punish you, or you'll die. And so you decide, well, hey, I think I'll move. Okay? And you, you have to now sell your home, quit your job, and go someplace else. And you're going to go 300 miles or 1,000 miles north. Would you count that as a crisis in your life? Probably, right? I mean, that would be a problem, right? And what happens when we get a crisis in our lives? What happens when we get a crisis in our lives? Don't we get completely like myopic, self-centered? Oftentimes, when people are in the midst of the crisis, they're the least gospel-centered you could ever imagine. Because why? We're having a crisis. And when we have a crisis, what does our flesh want? Our flesh would love to have the whole world revolve around us when we have a crisis. Isn't that true? It's true. If I can't find my car keys, and I'm trying to get out somewhere... I see people laughing right now at this one, right? Because you know where the story's going. You can't find your car keys. You know what's going to happen. You want the whole world to go, you know, I want my whole family to go, Dad, this is the worst thing that has ever befalled our family. I cannot believe this. I want them hugging me. I want them giving me their money. I, want, I mean, I want to be the center of the world right now. If I can't find my car keys. Somebody should say amen to that, right? You know what I'm saying. You know what I'm talking about. That's just car keys. They'll tell you that never happens, though, right? <laughs> That's just car keys, isn't it? Picture somebody trying to kill you, and yet these believers made their way up north, dealing with their own issues, dealing with the struggles of bringing the gospel. Do we? What do we do here now up in this area? How do we share the gospel? How do we live? And yet they stayed on mission. They didn't falter. One bit. It's amazing, isn't it? We're going to see why that's the case here. But the first thing that happened is that God brings this persecution upon them. Gospel goes forth, and this town that's about as sensual as Las Vegas, Nevada, has a revival going on. People are being transformed from sinner to saint. But then something else happens not only are they transformed from sinner to saint, now they're going to get transformed from untaught to taught. Okay, Look at verse 22 with me. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. No one really knows how many years this has been. Some say this could be up to like 10 years of a process. I don't know. We don't really totally know how much time it's passed. But the bottom line is, word's getting out that... There's repentance going on among these Gentiles in Antioch, up way up north, heading towards southern Turkey. And so they say, well, we got to send someone to go check this out, to find out what's happening. And so what happens? They send Barnabas. Barnabas is the right guy to send. right? We met Barnabas already in chapter 4. His real name is Joseph. His nickname was Barnabas. Barnabas just means son of encouragement. Barnabas is from this region, so he's the perfect guy to send. He's from up north, up in that area. And, uh, and so he would, he would have the insight. But we also know a couple things about Barnabas. Number one, the guy's a gospel man, right? He's the one that sold all his property and gave it to the church. And, and then when, when Saul repents and tries to come to the church in Jerusalem, and the beer are like, no way, we don't want this guy in here. He's tricking us. He's going to kill us. Barnabas goes to bat for it, puts his reputation on the line, and says, God's got his hand on this guy. Right? He's that kind of guy. He gets it. He sees it. In the book of Acts, he's actually called an apostle, a sent one, one who goes out and does this. So he goes, boom. He makes his way up there to Antioch. Now, notice, and a couple of things I want you to notice about Barnabas, I like to say it this way. You know, when you send somebody on a mission like this, you've got to send the right man with the right message. It's got to be the right man with the right message, right? This isn't just a random send, send anyone. It's the right man with the right message. Now, I want to show this to you. I want you to show, show you first that he has the right message. Look at verse 23. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. There's a lot in there, so let me just highlight some things you need to see. First of all, he saw the grace of God. What's he saying? Antioch is a pretty pagan place. There's all kinds of perversion that went on in Antioch. The temples there were wretched. If there weren't kids in the room, I still wouldn't even explain to you what was going on. It's worst-case scenario kind of thinking. That's what's going on in this place. And yet the Spirit of God falls upon these people, and it's all grace. God is saying, I know that you guys have been living these pagan lifestyles. I know some of you have sacrificed your own children at the altar of Baal. I've seen the perversion that has run rampant and the disease that's spreading through all your pagan practices. And yet, you know what? I'm going to say, forgiven. Forgiven. Because I punished Jesus in your place. Barnabas comes in and his heart is filled with joy. Grace has fallen upon this place. And then notice what he did. Here's the right message. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. If you want a definition of the fruit of discipleship, it's that statement right there. That's really what you're aiming at when you're discipling somebody. What does this mean? To remain faithful to the Lord with all steadfast purpose. Life throws at us a boatload of trials, does it not? And oftentimes we are one trial away from walking away from it all. Sometimes emotionally we feel as if, I can't go any further. I've reached the end. You know, all gas tank is empty. There's nothing left. Discipleship is taking people who've placed their faith in Christ and telling them, listen, this world is hard. It will not be easy through many trials and tribulations, through dealing with your own sin, through dealing with the sin of others, through dealing with the complexities of living in a fallen world, in a decaying body, and the fact that people are angry and some will even want to kill you. In the midst of all of that, I want to teach you how to keep your eyes on God so that you would never take them off. So that you would do what? You would be faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So that when persecution comes and you make your way to Antioch, you're not all freaked out because you've got to move to some new place. You're there saying, all right, who can I share Jesus with? What's my purpose for being here? Meaning this, Barnabas came in and said, listen, I want to teach you guys how to keep your eyes on Jesus no matter what comes your way. Because this world is tough. And you will be kicked in the gut more than once. Isn't that great? He's got this group of people coming out of paganism, and he's going to come in and invest his life into them, and say, "Listen, I'm not just going to teach you abstract truths. I'm not just going to teach you a bunch of, you know, theological terms. What I'm going to do is I'm going to teach you who God is, what He's done in Christ, how we walk uh, carrying out the gospel." How we keep our eyes on him in the midst of all the trials and the storms that will come our way. How we won't abandon God when things get tough. How we're going to think about these truths so that we don't let them go. See, that's the right message. That's what Barnabas did. And we know not only did he have the right message, but he was the right man. Look at verse 24. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Now notice, a good man, what does that mean? He had integrity. His yes was yes, his no was no. He was a man of integrity. This this is when we talk about having qualified leaders. It's the idea of this person has to have integrity. They have to have it. Not only that, full of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about this in Acts before. It means under the control of the Spirit. This was a person not under the control of his own emotions, not under the control of his own fears, not under the control of... He just walked in submission to the Spirit of God, and he walked by faith. There's the character trait. He was the right man. And the fruit of the right man with the right message is what? And a great many people were added to the Lord. Remember, in English, we don't use like double words like that, great many. English teacher would cut off one of those words. So you can't say great many. It's redundant. In the Greek, you can. You can put as many of those as you want. Usually, if there's a two words, two descriptors, it's, it's meant to be like powerful Great many, large sums, thousands upon thousands would be a, a way you could kind of translate that. Why? Because these individuals, this faithful people came in to preach the gospel. faithful leader came in to establish them and disciple them, to keep their eyes on Christ. The right man with the right message and the fruit was incredible. So much so. So many people are now joining this thing that he's got to go get help. So what does Barnabas do? Verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Tarsus, choose our thumb map, Antioch's here, Tarsus is up here. So he goes up here, grabs Saul, comes back down. That's what he does. Those of you in the back probably couldn't see that, but look at your thumbnail, get to the corner, the top uh, left corner, and then turn left. And there's Tarsus, He goes up there, he gets Saul, he brings him back. Why does he get Saul? Saul is a man that Barnabas knew was to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And he's got a Gentile church. So notice what happens, verse 26. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. I love this. For one year Barnabas and Saul... Taught these people how to keep their eyes on Jesus and to remain steadfast in the purpose for which God made them. For one year, you got these two guys, Barnabas and Saul, teaching you. The fruit of this is the church got a nickname. Now, I want to tell you something about this nickname. The church didn't pick this nickname, the only name the church ever picked for themselves was disciples, we're following Jesus. The Jews gave him a nickname, The Way, because you guys keep running around saying Jesus is The Way. The Gentiles give him a different nickname, Little Christ, Christ Ones. You guys are so into Jesus, you so act like him, that we're just going to call you Little Jesuses. Your response to trials is love and forgiveness and tenderness, and you stand for truth, and you don't... You know, do things to your families that we do, and you don't do this, and you don't do that. You guys are little Christ. You guys are different. They have set up a counter-community in the midst of this pagan community. A contrast community, you could call it. And this contrast community is so contrast that they got a name. And the name Christian was not done by a marketing firm, right? It wasn't like we do today. We get a bunch of marketers together. How can we brand Krishwaukee Bible Church? Let's give it this name, and this will connect with the culture. They just were so transformed the culture gave them the nickname. Wouldn't that be so cool? That you'd be so transformed that the culture's given you a name. And you know what? The church, the people of Antioch, the pagans of Antioch, that name has stuck with us, hasn't it? That's what we call ourselves now Christians. It's amazing. This is the first place that term is used. Their teaching bore fruit. So, here's what we have so far. This church, people go up to this area, major transformation from sinner to saint, major transformation from untaught to taught, from unestablished to established. Now, the final transformation happens. They go from a place that receives missionaries to a place that sends missionaries. Look at verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. You know what I love is that in verse 19, we have this, or I should say it this way, the very beginning of this story, we have this mission work going on, And the church responds by sending Barnabas. And how does the story end with Antioch sending Barnabas back? Isn't that cool? He goes back. And they sent him there. It's totally cool. Now let's see how that happened. This guy, this prophet comes down. His name is Agabus. Agabus shows up again later in Acts. Won't be our only time we see him. We'll see him in chapter 21 again. Agabus is a prophet. In Joel chapter 2, verse 28, Joel made the the, the prophecy, said that when the Messiah comes, man, there's going to be all kinds of prophecy going on. Messiah comes, and what happens? All kinds of prophecies going on. This is an amazing prophecy because he says there's going to be a famine. Luke wants us to know that this prophecy wasn't just some stab in the dark, you know. I remember one time, this is years ago, when I was up in Alaska, this guy came up to me and said, I have a prophecy for you. By the end of 2011, two people from another country will come into your church and cause a revival. Okay, now, he had this prophecy in January of 2001. So then by, you know, September 11th happened, right? September 2001. And then later that year, I saw that guy and I said, hey, th- that never happened. Should I kill you? Right? Deuteronomy 13 should say I should stone you, right? Prophecy doesn't come true. I should get some big rocks and crush your head, right? I said that to him, jokingly, laughing, just wondering what he'd say. And he said, no, my prophecy came true September 11th. said, ah, you can't force balance the books, buddy. (laughs) You know, you cannot just force that into that. That wasn't a prophecy. In this case, Luke isn't doing that. He isn't just telling us this guy went out here and was speculating something. How do we know that it was true? Because Luke gives us the facts. What does he say? Agabus comes in and says this. And, oh, by the way, this happened during the reign of Claudius. If you went back and studied the history of Claudius, you would find that at the end of Claudius' reign, there was a famine in Judea. So Luke's saying, listen, this is a true deal here, right? This isn't some made-up story here. But before the famine happened, what happens? The church comes, and they respond. Agabus comes and says, the famine's going to happen. And so I'm envisioning this. Barnabas and Saul are gathering these thousands of believers, and here's what they say to them. Picture this. They say, church... Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church is about ready to get hit with a famine. They're going to have nothing, right? A famine, and we don't know what a famine's like in our culture. But, I mean, a famine in those days means you die. That's it. There's no food. No food. We do not have trucks coming across the sea, dropping off food. We don't have world vision. We don't have these kind of moments. There's nothing. If a famine hits your region, say goodbye to your family. Start digging your graves now. That's how bad a famine is. So Barnabas and Saul say, listen, there's a famine coming. Every one of you needs to give. If you're rich, I expect a lot of money. If you're poor, just give us a quarter. Everyone's got to give. It's time for our church to step up and minister to the church in Jerusalem gave the money, and then the church did the most amazing thing you could ever imagine. They took two of the most prominent leaders and sent them with the cash. Go. That is an amazing commitment to the body of Christ, isn't it? It's an amazing commitment. The church in Antioch stepped up, and they not only, everybody gave, they even gave Barnabas and Saul they weren't building an empire to themselves. They were t- Whatever they received, they gave it back. They received Barnabas from Jerusalem. They're willing to give Barnabas back to Jerusalem. Now, why did God do this? God used this famine for a couple of reasons, a few reasons. I'll give you two at least. That the church in Antioch, it shows this church in Antioch is equal to the church in Jerusalem. They're going to give back what they have received. But also Luke is showing us that Antioch is now going to be the center of the worldwide mission. It's all shifting. The center is shifting over here to this very unique place. Okay, let's wrap it up here. What do we do with this? I told you at the beginning, I really want you to see the heart of God in this. I want you to see how God uses all these streams. Everything that happened in the church led to this moment where the church in Antioch could be formed. And God had the power to move people. God used persecution, he used trials, he used suffering, he used the lessons learned from dealing with sin, he used the lessons learned from dealing with their own personal crisis, people having to face their own failures, people having to to overcome their own prejudices. All of this stuff that took place in that church led to this movement of people, and then the right man with the right mission can step in and establish this church so that this church could launch a worldwide movement. And as I look at this, I realize there's three things that I see in this text, three points of observation I want to point out to you that really uh, challenge me. Because, you see, I see the church responding first and foremost as people who were faithful to the mission. That No matter what the crisis was that was going on in their life, they didn't stop being Christians in the middle of that crisis. They didn't abandon their Christianity when Saul was trying to kill him. They didn't abandon their Christianity when the church was trying to figure out it dealing with its own prejudices. They didn't abandon their Christianity as the church was trying to understand how this thing works and struggling and making mistakes and, and not everybody doing everything perfectly. They didn't walk away from this moment, even though within the church and outside the church there was conflicts and problems and pain, they remained faithful to the mission because they weren't just serving the church, they were serving Jesus, the one who saved them. And they remained faithful to the mission. And as a result, believers were formed. Second thing that I want to observe in this text is they not only were faithful to the mission, they were faithful to the message. You know, mission isn't just about going out there and getting people converted. It's about seeing people established in the faith. Seeing people established so that they wouldn't take their eyes off of Jesus when everything breaks loose around them. When the ship's going down and there looks like there's no hope. They remained steadfast in purpose. They were faithful to that message because that's what Jesus said. I want you to go to all nations. I want you to make disciples. I want you to make disciples of people who will follow me, that will stay true to me no matter what. They were faithful to that message. And finally, I picked an M word here. They were faithful to the members. They were faithful to the members. What do I mean by that? The church in Antioch did not build an empire to itself saying, well, we're just our own church. Those Jerusalem people, hey, man, they got like 12 apostles there, man. They're, they're okay. They don't need us. I mean, they, they can solve their own problems. Or why would we do that for them? Or what about, you know, they're not faithful anymore because they're a little bit more Jewish cliquish. They're the cliquish church over there. Whatever. They didn't respond with those kind of immature responses. Our brothers need help. Let's help them. Let's help them. And not only let's help them, We're all going to give cash, and we're all going to give our best leaders. That's how committed we are to this. Why? Because God's our provider. God will provide the next layer of leadership, and God will provide the money we need to live. God's our provider. And so they were faithful. They could be faithful to each other. I'm challenged by that. I'm challenged by their their love of the mission, their commitment to the message and their care for the members. And as this church unfolds, we're going to see this, what was the seedbed here, flower into an amazing thing. But before we do that, why don't we do this right now and just pray. And pray for our church, pray for ourselves, pray that we would, that the Spirit of God would work in our lives in such a way that we could see this same thing emerge in the life of our church. Bow your head with me and let's pray. God, the ministry that happened in this area, in this region, just so profoundly impacts me. I, you know, it's hard to even find the words. I don't even feel like I got close to the, to the depth of what happened here. But Lord, I just pray for us. We don't stand here perfect We don't stand here saying that we do everything right, but Lord, I just pray that we would be faithful, even in our struggles that we'd be faithful, even in our weaknesses that we'd be faithful, even in our trials that we would be faithful. Lord, that that in the midst of the crisis, whether it's the losing of our car keys or whether it's something infinitely deeper, God, we... Pray that we wouldn't shift the center of the universe to ourselves, but that we'd remain Christ-centered in that. So that even when everything's breaking loose and, and we've got to scatter because of trials and problems, that we'd always remain faithful to telling people about Jesus, the Lord and Judge of the world, and the Savior of mankind. And Lord, as a church body, may we understand that it's not just about entertainment, it's not just about how we feel, but it's about discipling and growing so that we would be transformed, so that we would see ourselves steadfast in purpose, having that kind of commitment. Lord, help us as a church as we, we unfold things, that, that these, the, the end would not be just the ministry, the end itself would be people who are faithful to the Lord and steadfast in purpose. Lord, may that be true of us. And because of that, may you fill us with so much love that we would not just see ourselves in isolation of the world at large, but part of the world, part of the global context, part of your entire global work that you're doing. Allow us to keep our eyes on that and not just on ourselves. Lord, thank you for these truths and thank you for recording these truths. Thank you for your spirit that applies it to our lives. May we be found faithful. In Christ's name, amen.